You're listening to the Pursuing Alpha podcast, hosted by Charles Brandon Snyder. Mark Barefield, man, it's good to have you on the podcast. It's been a long time in the making. I'm really excited about this. Uh, You've been with the firm for, man, what is that, like close to six, nine months now? Yeah, six months. That's awesome. uh, You like it? It's been fun. Yeah, it's been a lot. Uh, It's been it's been a lot of fun learning, getting to be around some people that are like minded with serving people in our community and serving families the the way that we do. That's uh, we love to have you here. And I I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. And so take it 30 seconds here, high level and kind of introduce yourself and what you do. Yeah. So I'm Mark Bearfield. I've been in this industry now for right at eight years. Um, from a little town called Kittiquay, Texas. Our family's been out there since 1911, settled in 1909 and established a ranch in 1911. That's where my parents still live to this day. Um, got married when I was a young 20-year-old uh, to Angela. We now have three kids, uh, 13, 11, and not, uh, six, two dogs, <laughs> Tex and Maggie. Uh, we're settled in a little community north of Wichita Falls called Burt Burnett, and we've been we've been uh, faithful there to our church. We were involved. I play bass guitar. Angela sings harmony. She helps out in the kids' ministry, and uh, she's been rocking and rolling ever since. So you mainly uh, work for the firm on on in the West uh, Wichita Falls office, mm-hmm. but but you kind of service all of Texas. You kind of have clients a little where well, not even Texas. You're in yeah. Oklahoma. You yep. you go kind of all over the place. Yeah. Whenever I first got the uh, the opportunity to serve our community there. They said, uh, you know, what do you think about Burt Burnett? I was like, oh, it's great. Where is it? And they said, well, it's North Wichita Falls. And I said, well, I'd really love to live in Texas if possible. They're like, well, there's a little Texas north of, you know, Wichita Falls. and But several of our clients are from Oklahoma, so we get that opportunity to serve them and the unique nuances that they have outside of uh, Texas residents. That's amazing. That's yeah. awesome. You you like it there? We love it there. Yeah, we've been uh, we've been – trying to dig our um, dig into our, or have our roots dug into the community try to serve any everywhere that we can uh, our kids have been there my son's been there since kindergarten my youngest son was born there and he's lived there his entire life for me personally you know I moved around every two or three years growing up and this is the longest I've ever lived in one spot so uh, we've, we feel like we have been called to this community uh, we've tried to leave two or three times, and we have been clearly told that this is where we are planted, and we are to thrive where we are planted. I, I heard Wichita Falls is one of the hottest places in the country. Uh, yeah, there's there's several times throughout the summer that we're the hottest place in America. That is insane. Yeah, yeah. We actually have a uh, 100 mile bike ride called the Hotter Than Hell Hundred. Really? Yeah. Yep. It is, and I've talked to the bike riders, and they said this is one of the hardest races. Because usually there's elevation change, and out there it's so flat that it's basically a 100-mile sprint. That's and, nuts. And it's 112 when they do it. I know. Lubbock, just here lately, Lubbock has been just hot. Mm-hmm. It's either it's hot or it's kind of muggy, and we're yeah. getting a lot of rain. And, and if you've ever been to West Texas, it's like a desert. We don't get rain. We get like 16 inches a year. Yeah. I think we've gotten like 30 or 40 already this year. I mean, yeah. it's like every other day it's raining out here. A couple of weeks back, we had like a hailstorm that was the biggest I've ever seen in my lifetime. It's like baseball and softball. I'm not exaggerating here. It yeah. is bigger than baseball hill. Yeah. I mean, it just destroyed all of our cars. We were here at the office with it. And so the extreme weather in West Texas, uh, I think the joke for a long time is if you don't like the weather out here, wait 15 minutes and it'll change. And, and yeah. that's so true here. So I think Wichita Falls might have us beat, though, on the heat, though. it's We're 108 on our hottest days. Yeah. But I think y'all are – you know, in the teens, 113, 114 at times, aren't you? 
Yeah, so we get the blessing of the West Texas heat with the East Texas humidity. Mm. So we're right there on that line, and we get a lot of the storms as as they come down. All the cold, dry air comes off the Rocky Mountains, and the warm, moist air comes up from the coast. And um, in 2020, we had uh, a hailstorm come through with uh, cantaloupe-sized hail. People from NASA came up. It was going through people's roofs and ceilings and landing in their living rooms. So you just said cantaloupe-sized mm-hmm. hail, yeah. like, like cantaloupe. Yeah, there was – about five houses down, there was a lady that took a picture of a cantaloupe, uh, took a piece of hail that had fallen in her front yard. It was maybe just a little bit smaller than a cantaloupe, but yeah, they uh, people from NASA, Dallas, I mean, they were all up in Burt Burnett looking at that. We were actually declared a disaster area during that storm. That's insane. Mm-hmm. And how bad West Texas has been here? We had an F4 tornado yeah. in Matador, which is about what? How far is Matador away? Ryan? Yeah, it's about 30 miles away from Lubbock. I thought it was about 40, but you're right. It's about 30 miles. And then yep. Perryton, which mm-hmm. is about 100 miles or so away, yep. they had a F3 really bad one too. And yep. both those had losses of life and, and pretty much devastated it. Yep. So I, I will tell you right here in West Texas, we've had some bad ones lately. But So what do you do? What's your main uh, job you do here? Yeah, that's a great question. We get that a lot. And the, the thing we try to avoid is labeling ourselves. We're not a box. We don't put stickers on ourselves. But some of the things that we do for clients is we sit down and ask them a lot of really good questions to find out where their heart is and where they'd like to go. And based off of where they are and where they would like to go, we try to come up with some unique um, ways to serve them and their family to help protect them, to help them be efficient with their taxation, and to also help them be a little bit more profitable in the long run. But the core, most people know you as a financial planner, though. Yeah, so if you're going to put a, a, a label, label on, on me, it. <laughs> well, it's actually a, it's actually a wealth manager, but yes, planning yeah. and financials and all that, yes, absolutely. And so what what was the big change? Because you were in an independent firm before you came over, and, and, you know, so what made you change from where you were at? It was a big, huge firm, and yeah. to coming over here and working with us. Yeah, I've served at two firms prior to this, and, and it's they were both blessings, and I really do appreciate the opportunity working at both those firms. The difference for me, though, was um, at those firms, I really felt like the people's money was the client. And whenever I would make recommendations as a fiduciary in the client's best interest and not my personal best interest, in the back of my mind as a human, as a father, as a husband, as someone who supports our community, it was always, how am I going to feed my kids? How am I going to provide for my family? And there was always just that small possibility of a chance of doing something not as a fiduciary. Now our clients are truly our clients, not their money. Because we come in, we ask them what they want to do, and regardless of what they want to do or where they want to put their money or what tools they want to use to accomplish these these tasks, we do it. And and so we're uh, Alpha Capital's a planning firm first. And, and so I, I, I was fortunate. I grew up in that, you know, for the last 10 years. Right. And I've met a lot of guys that haven't. And I think you've uh, gr- really gravitated towards the way that we work with clients and, and you've been a huge sponge. And I think this right now you're in town because this is our mid-year kickoff, yeah. which is we, we kind of celebrate uh, the whole firm twice a year in mid-year and then annual plan. Mid-year is more of our educational platform side of it. So we've, we've been fortunate. We've had a couple of guys come in and we just had came out of a two, two and a half hour meeting with one of the greatest estate planning attorneys yeah. in the country. And, and Bennett, um, I think we're supposed to have Bennett on here in the next couple of weeks. And so Bennett's amazing. I can't if you, if you watch this, you got to watch Bennett too because yeah. he's he's insane. So I mean, he took us in one of the 
deepest dives of trust and estate planning I've been in in my career. Um, I knew a lot of it, but every time I'm around that dude, yeah. it just, you learn so much. You're like a sponge, you know. Uh, we got into the point where we're smart enough now where we just actually, for internal purposes, we actually just were recording because yeah. he, he's got so much information and he's such a breadth of knowledge that you just got to record him so you can yeah. watch it over again and pick it up, pick it up, pick it up. And so it's it's a great, we don't, we're not attorneys. We don't try to be attorneys, but right. we have to speak their language. We have yeah. to understand what they're saying. And so I think it's a great opportunity uh, for us to get together and kind of renew our minds to yeah. what these guys do. And, and Bennett's great on side there. So um, planning. So, so break down how you do planning, because no matter if you're inside of our practice or, or you're a planner in your own right, everybody has nuances of how they do planning. Right. So, so kind of break down the way that we do planning here at Alpha Capital, but also break down the nuance of how you work with it, how yeah. you've adapted it to your practice. Yeah. And one of the biggest things for me, um, at the last couple of firms I was at was they were very transactional. So it was volume versus depth. And so they wanted a lot of people in the door, not deep, deep relationships. Um, and so the, the thing that I've really gravitated to on this was I was taught to try to get people to sign documents, to open accounts, to start that transition in the first appointment, get them committed in the first appointment. And for us, if it's not a good fit, we'd rather ha not have them as clients because it's better for everybody all the way around. And so it's, it's moved from a one appointment process to try to get them to be considered what we would call client to now it's a two or three appointment process to make sure that we understand what they're wanting to make sure that we're able to provide what they're wanting. And, um, I, I, I appreciate that much more. Usually the first appointment for me now is just a ton of questions. Mm -hmm. Like I've had client or people that are clients now, but whenever they first started talking to us, they would bring me a, a pile of these statements for, you know, their brokerage accounts their life insurance, their annuities, their 401ks, their wills, their trusts, and, and essentially what I do is just take that and I put it in a chair next to me. I go, that's all great, that's fine, but let's talk about what's most important to you. Where are you today? And in that conversation with them and their spouses, a lot of times I find out that they're not even really sure where they are today. Sure. And and that's that's really been uh, eye-opening to me is to really find out where people are. To I really enjoy seeing light bulb moments of they're like, oh, I didn't realize we had that much money going out because we'll ask questions like, well, if we were to give you, you know, monthly income right now, how much would it take for you to survive? And if they say, you know, $5,000, I'm like, great. Well, your income is $8,000 a month. You say you can live off $5,000 a month. So now we're saying there's a $3,000 uh, value that you're able to give to us to help you and your family out for achieving your goals. And they're like, well, no, we couldn't do that. And so we're able to dig in deeper and say, okay, so if it's not 5,000, where is it? And a lot of times we find that people have dollars disappearing or they're they not, don't even know about they it. don't even know about it. It's not being, it's not being accounted for. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I really try to help people understand is, you, you know, every dollar that you own is a, is a worker for you. If you own a business, you got to know what every worker is supposed to be doing, what, how productive they're supposed to be, what role they play. And if you treat your dollars like that, man, it's just so much better for people. I agree with you on that. 
the to the point that we've spent I've spent the better part of three years working on this and, and this last probably six, nine months, we've accelerated this and, and we're working on on a project called Advisorist that is our own software. And the key basis to our software is to create standards for people. Yeah. Because and that's what you're talking about, this cash flow standard yes. is understanding what the cash flow that they're they're generating through their human capital or their assets and understanding how that plays a part and where everything's allocated and make sure it's allocated to the right uh, you know asset or the right purpose to what fits their financial goal in the season of life that they're in and that's very very important that people kind of uh, you know it's the shotgun approach is what we usually see is hey i'm i know what it's going to take for me to operate on my debt um you know we talked about this with a couple other guys but your debt to income ratio right and so they they just kind of Say, hey, I got to pay for a house. That's two or three thousand dollars. I got to pay for cars. That's two or three thousand dollars. I got to pay for medical expenses. I'll eat now, and they kind of just say, okay, I need about five or six thousand dollars to, to live on, but the, but then they have all of these other expenses they don't account for, whether it's eating out or where it's going out and traveling or or buying gifts for family members or just having fun in life, yeah. and they just kind of you know it's out of sight or out of mind or it's just small ticket items like hey I'm paying for gas I'm paying for subscriptions and Netflix and all this stuff they just don't take the time to account for so I don't think it's ever intentional and I think right. that's what planning is and I always say this is there's two things that we do that I think is unique one is I believe that we're a marketing firm that sells financial products. And what I mean that is not derogatory. I mean that most people don't understand what they're actually doing. So we have to market to them because we're competing against that Starbucks dollar, Mm -hmm. right? That's what we are. We're competing against that Amazon dollar of going and buying that next widget. So we have to present ourselves in a, in a way, shape, form and fashion to be as attractive as that next widget, because we live in a culture now that it's like, you know, keeping up the Joneses or it's going, Hey, I want to buy this. I want that instant gratification. It's very hard for people today to actually look past that and look, Hey, what's five years, three years, 10 years, 20 years down the road. What's that going to look like for you? And when you enter these different seasons lives, how are you going to get there? And so we have to make it, and, and, you know, the fact that we have a podcast is just astonishing to me from where I started in my career 10, 12 years ago. This is unheard of for us Mm -hmm. to be able to communicate to the public about this and just give so much information away for free. But the second half of that is that we believe, I believe, and I think this is what we built our practice on, is financial planning is not the plan itself. Right. And I believe there's such a disconnect with a lot of financial planners today, especially when they get into it early or that they grew up in the old school, as they believe that there's value in the financial plan. And we do not. Right. Right. We, we've uh, spoke on this a couple of times that um, and this came really came from Wes. But uh, Wes is just an amazing, amazing financial planner. Yeah, but phenomenal. Phenomenal. Right. Yeah. And you, you went and did his class yeah. for a week there in, in Austin. That's one of the first things that we send the, the new advisors that join our firm uh, to is, is he's just so good at what he does. Um, and we take a lot of things from him and we adapt it. And I think we do a lot of great, great things different than what he does in his practice uh, that I think, you know, commeshing those things together, really iron sharpens iron. But my point is, is, is I think that we really get into that financial planning is just evidence that planning took place. A financial right. plan is just evidence financial right. planning took place. And what that means is, is to, as a consumer, me, myself, and me and Jen and my wife and my kids, I mean, it's the constant engagement of wealth 
and finance and, and money to actually understand where you, where you are today and where you want to go. And, um, and that's why everything we, we do is centered around that constant engagement. So we do produce financial plans, but we just think they're a byproduct. They're just evidence that, that you took the time to actually go through planning. It's a receipt. It is. It really is at the end of the day. Yeah. And it's kind of cool to look through those receipts, mm -hmm. but I think there's too much emphasis on the actual plan document. Yeah. And I will tell you, I, I've asked all of my clients, how much did y'all actually go look at that financial plan? And I would say 70 to 90% of them would say, I looked at it, you know, three or four pages or while we were in our meeting, we right. looked over it because it's, it's really built to make sure that it, it checks all the boxes of the regulators in our industry to make sure FINRA and the SEC and, and, right. you know, all those guys are just saying, Hey, we're doing everything, which is good. But what we're developing now, which is, I think is so interesting is taking that information, adhering to it as a part of our financial plan, but we're adding in these one pages mm -hmm. and, and it really comes down to what we call the map or the measurable action plan. But it's also a map is such a great uh, illustration or analogy, however you want to put that. If you had a map and you don't know where you're at, but you know where you're going, could you get there? You really can't. Right. But if you know where you're at, but you don't know where you're going, could you get there? So right. it really takes that, hey, you need a key. You need to understand how to read the map. That's what financial planners do is help you understand how to read it. Right. But they also help you identify where you're at today and where you want to go tomorrow. And I think some of the things that we also do that incorporate the, the trip is we also point out potential pitfalls. And when something happens, not if, but when something happens, this is what we will do. We have an action plan for that, mm. that incident. Mm -hmm. Everybody loves surprises except when it comes to their money, mm -hmm. right? Birthdays are wonderful things. Gifts are wonderful things. You know, um, your friends popping in for a visit is a wonderful thing. But whenever they see something financially, it, it crushes them because I, I firmly believe that money is love. Now, it's not the love of money, but is money is an expression of love because you give up the one thing that you'll never get back for that compensation, which is time. Hmm. And you spend time to get compensated with money when you could have spent time with your family, you could have spent time with your community, your church, you could have spent time doing hobbies that you enjoy, you could have spent time recouping. You spend time, people compensate you for that time, and then you show, how do you show your family your love for them? You take them on vacations. I've got three kids. My kids have not earned a vacation from me, but I take them with me because I love them. Sure. I, my, my kids have not earned shelter or food or clothing. I show that to them. I, I provide that for them because I love them. Sure. I think in our world, this is becoming more and more of a, a term, and it's it's really a huge foundation. You're talking about the monetary value of human capital and when you're tra trading yeah. your time for money. And, and that is such an important thing, and eventually people don't want to do that. They want to work because they want to, not because they have to. They don't want to work because right. they enjoy it, not because it's a requirement. Yeah. And, and once you hit that stage, and I've been fortunate where I've hit that stage early, early on, um, I, I will tell you this. Every single successful guys, and we're fortunate whether we've managed guys, we manage guys at the firm that are worth 50 million, 100 million. We got one set of family that's like over a billion dollars, and their net worth is we don't manage a right. billion dollars of theirs, right? That a lot of that's in hard assets that they own, but a lot of oil and gas and real estate. But the point I'm trying to make is a lot of people look at it as a destination that you're trying to arrive at. 
and uh, Wes is great on this one too. It's like we, I try to help clients to say, this is never going to be a destination that you arrive at because the problem with arriving at that destination is what, the what's next. And, and God, I think built us to make today better than yesterday and tomorrow better than today. Right. And that, that, that endless hope of being able to be better will never go away. And so I think that works in finance as well. When you achieve something, two things happen. If, if your, your sight and everything is about the destination and it's not about the journey and you try to achieve financial success and yeah. it's a destination, then it becomes, what happens when you achieve it? Yeah. It sucks. Yeah. Right. It's just not fun. Then you're like, Oh, what's next? Yeah. I, I had a lady, she had, um, when I started, when she started with me being a client, she, her account was right at 800,000. She goes, my only dream is to be a millionaire. I said, well, you are a millionaire because your house plus your accounts is over a million dollars. She goes, no, 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 to have a million dollars in my account. And three years later, she hit that million dollar mark. And I called her. I said, hey, congratulations. You hit that million dollar mark. She goes, really? I said, yeah. How does it feel? She goes, slightly disappointed. Yeah. Slightly disappointed. Every time. Yeah. And I was like, it's just a number. Right. It's just a number. It doesn't really matter a whole lot. But what the point I think we're trying to both make yeah. here is it's just really the journey's got to be as fun, right? Yeah. And, and and you really have to and, – and why that's so important is because if you get somebody to adhere to your process systems and your planning and what you're trying to offer them, because at the end of the day, it's just a service, right? Mm -hmm. It's that constant engagement of wealth that we're trying to get them to engage with us on and follow right. our path that we're setting up. And that's why it takes so long to actually become a client of ours. Usually it's in the second meeting, but a lot of times for higher net worth people, sometimes I'm in, you know, four, five, six meetings yeah. deep because it's not that we're trying to go slow or anything. It's just they are so complicated because yeah. they have 27 companies and they have wills and trusts and other advisors and all these other things that everybody's got to get on the same page before it really makes sense for us to actually engage them in a, in a planning uh, agreement. Then you really need to make sure that they fit and they adhere to it because the worst client you could ever have, and nobody talks about this because it's kind of like that other firm you're at, right? It's trying to get everybody in the door and just manage their money or, right. you know, put a product in place. Ours is the exact opposite. It's trying to get the right client in the door, right? right. That's going to adhere to your planning services, right? And the services that says, just take your recommendations, right? right. Show up to appointments, take phone calls, make sure you're doing the things that we ask you to do because we do have the knowledge and, and decades worth of experience you know inside the firm and we have very smart people to make sure it does it the worst client i have is clients that just don't listen to me and it typically it always ends up being where it's a, just a tough conversation and it's yeah. healthy tension and it's yeah. a good conversation but it is tough it's going hey either we're we're either going to make some adjustments and it, and you either kind of show up for the meetings, have conversations like, well, wow, Brennan, like you're doing a good job and I just want you to go and, and just do it. I don't need to know all the details. And I go, I, I get it. I appreciate the trust that you have yeah. in us. But the problem with that is, is I can't do my job from a fiduciary standpoint if you're not involved right. in it. So it opens up risk for us. If you're not actually, you know, picking up the phone, answering questions, engaging with us. And it's the constant engagement of on wealth. So right. that's what really you have to align clients that, Sometimes it's like, you know, I'm six months, a year, two, three years into this thing. And it's like, Brennan, I love the planning side of it. I just don't want to be that 
engage you all that time. And I'm like, cool, let's make some adjustments and we can figure out what it is. Sometimes people are on such a good rhythm and they're enjoying it that they don't need to meet every other month. Sometimes they just need to meet twice a year and they're good and they're good enough for where they're at. They can right. just get everything done. Right. So it's not like it's so rigid. It's a very fluid relationship that we have with clients, but it does have to be agreed upon and mutually reciprocated. And yeah. that's what we take so much time to engage people in financial planning. So, and, and I think a lot of it too is they've been trained mm. because a lot of, a lot of the people that we have come over are, are coming over from transactional based firms mm -hmm. to where they talk to them twice a year. They run it through some kind of an analysis. They run it through a software, you know, risk, software, risk tolerance questionnaire and all that. And for us, the way that we run this practice is a lot like a doctor. If a doctor prescribes a drug before he does the evaluation, that's called malpractice. Mm -hmm. And for us, if we start making these declarations of what they should do in their lives before we, number one, before we fully understand where they are, and number two, help them feel the weight of the problems that we're trying to solve for them, it is financial malpractice on our part. Because Dude, now you, we're you making such a point here. Like psychology and what we do is so important, but really touch on that. Like you, we stress this with all of our team is, is clients have to feel the weight of the problem. And, and I always say this is we cannot tell them what the problem is. We have to actually lead them down that path to say, Hey, what do you think you would do if this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. Mm -hmm. And then they come to that conclusion where they actually speak the truth of what they want to have happen. But they just didn't know what the options were, what the problem was. And so they, they know something's not right. They see that they have risk or, or they see that they have a hole or a gap in their plan. But I think, you know, speak on that a little bit on what the weight of how you get clients to understand the weight of their own uh, financial risk and problems that they have. Yeah, and, that, and that's really the hardest thing of our job is to help people understand that because most of the people that we talk to, I would say 80 to 90 percent, they're doing well. And without this, they'll continue to do well. But with us, they could do better. They could be more profitable, pay less in taxes. Their estate will go as cleanly as possible. But, and for me, I'm having learned this also from a solution-based, um, you know, from the solution-based firms I've, I've come from where all we do is make recommendations and don't ask a lot of questions. But for us to go in there and say, you know, what is it that's most concerning for you? And they're like, you know, we really don't know. And to try, like, I, I liken it back to that movie uh, Inception. So we start asking them questions. Well, you know, what is it about? So you ask a client, hey, you know, if you were to retire today, where would you want to go? The mountains. Great. You want to go to the mountains. What is it about the mountains that want to draw you out there? Well, I used to go to family vacations out there. Great. Why did your family go out there? And you start getting into the second and third levels of what they're really getting at, the, the inception of their dreams, the inception of what they're really trying to accomplish and having them ver verbalize that to you and then repeating it back to them, they're like, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it, it brings it, you know, brings it to reality almost, like them speaking it out and actually putting a plan in place for them. Yeah. It, it really does bring it out there. And, and it's the difference between us painting a picture for them and allowing them to paint the picture of what they want for themselves. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. Hey, so we just jumped back in from a quick break here. So when we were 
about midway through when we're talking about how do you help clients feel the weight of their problems. And mm-hmm. so what, what what's a good way for you to actually communicate what clients need to be aware of? Yeah, I think one of the things that uh, a, cl- a lot of people are starting to realize is the lack of education on how money really works. People don't realize the options that they have. For for a lot of people, it's a scarcity mindset of I earn a dollar, I spend a dollar, I've got to pinch pennies, um, we, we've got to come into it saving, we can't spend. And it's a scarcity mindset, which really puts people in a bad spot because it stresses them out. Now they're upset when something gets spent or bought that they shouldn't have had. Instead of saying, how can, you know, what, what can we do to, or, you know, what can we afford? They should be asking, what do we need to do to, to buy it? Sure. Right. And, and going from scarcity to uh, a place of abundance. To. Yeah. I get to. Yeah, yeah. Because there's, there is no lack of ways to earn money. Mm-hmm. Like if you're willing, and this is something that I, I talk to a lot of clients about is, you know, there's a price to things and there's a value to things. If, if you're willing, uh, we flippantly walk into places like uh, I walked into an Allsup's on the way up here and I bought a couple of energy drinks and some candy and, and Cokes for my kids. And to me, you know, if you, if you really break that down into what it is, it's the value of the things that I bought were worth more to me than the dollars that I paid for it. And then vice versa, the people that the store, Allsup's, thought my money was worth more to them than the value of the stuff that I bought. Mm. And so that was an equitable transaction at that point. And if you get in, if you can find a way to find equitable transaction transactions between people on a service or a talent or a, a way that you can serve them where the value of what you're providing is worth more than the money that you're willing to get paid for it, there's no, there's no End of, ends of ways to make money. There's no ends of ways to provide better future for your family, to be more profitable. And now you go from scarcity to abundance and your your world gets immensely better. So break that down to us a little bit on how we do it actually with planning. Like like and, and what I'm specifically talking about is we we've adopted new strategies inside of our plans. What I'm really talking about is our standards. And Gustavo and we talked about this last week as our pair planner here. And we're, we're really focusing on really identifying what that abundance is. And what I mean by that is there's things like debt to service coverage ratio, right? right? Standard of liquidity, yeah. standard of care, right? Standard of debt. All these things have a common denominator to it, and that's the standard. And I think if you help clients or we help clients right. identify what those standards are, then they get to understand if there's enough value to make sure that they're able to do what they want to do. And, and it gets them out of that scarcity mindset. Yeah. And one of the things that I have learned, I didn't, I didn't know this until I, I moved over here is things fall into one of two categories and we, we try to simplify it. It's either an asset or it's a, it's a liability. If it's an asset, it provides income for us provides income for us sometime in the future or today or today or it's a liability which means we have to pay to have that Mm -hmm. and a lot of times people will put our their liabilities into the assets when it should really be a liability like a lot of times people say well my house is worth half a million dollars so now my my net worth what i you know people call net wealth i call net worth because it's not you're not worth more or less because of the stuff that you have sure so their net wealth worth is is not going to be higher because are you willing to sell the place that you live? Right. 
Now you also look at it as do you does your house cost you money or does it make you money? Mm-hmm. Do you pay taxes on it? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Do you pay insurance on it? Absolutely. absolutely. Do you pay a water bill, an electric bill? Absolutely. So it is a liability, even though it may be growing intrinsically on the surface. It's it's a cost. The boat that you take to the lake, it's a cost. Mm-hmm. Now, could you sell your boat back later for a higher price? Potentially. Same with your vehicles. So we, we really need to help people. And it's a, it's a two-degree shift in, in realization of where they are. And we try to help move them just a little bit more to see where we are trying to help get them, you know, help educate them to where it should be. And it's usually not a drastic shift. It, it's not. It sounds like it, that's a monumental shift, but it's really just like two degrees change in their perspective. Yes. It, it will, will help them a whole immensely. I, I like the fact that you identified one thing there is everything's got to be an income producing asset if it's going to be on your balance sheet and considered an asset. And I get it. Your home is an asset. It has monetary value in most cases. But it doesn't mean that it's actually going to help you to your goal. And so it's one of those things that, you know, if you do sell your house and you, you know, buy a downgrade and your kids are at home and, you you know, it's kind of funny how people are start out in their 20s and they they don't have a whole lot and they rent, they buy their first house and it's real small and then their human capital is worth more. So they make more money. So they buy a bigger house and and then eventually their kids grow up and they don't need that bigger house and they buy a smaller one, they downgrade and they take that profit Mm -hmm. and they go buy their vacation home or it helps them get to retirement quicker you know that's a natural progression that we see inside of people as they go through the seasonal life of accumulation to distribution of of assets but what i think you're getting into is if you change your their and we just talked about this when we're offline i had to go handle a a withdrawal they somebody a client just bought a a vacation home in, in florida and they didn't have the foresight to uh, again goes back to planning to give me a call and but they put an option period on this thing almost a month ago but they called me and they need the money uh it's friday right now and they need the money on monday <laughs> yeah and, and they didn't understand it's trade plus two days here yeah. so i mean we can't get access to that capital until tuesday wednesday thursday somewhere on there and to get it back to them they were like oh no yeah. and i'm like we talked about this like yeah. if you need money it takes a couple of days to get get access to it but clients always seem to forget but what mean you talked about offline is that you in that scenario they could have done so many other things than that yeah right and interest rates are really high right now but i would rather have i think cash is king and i think cash buys you time and buys you ways out if you get in a bind and having multiple properties is a great thing to have but it's typically not the greatest thing to have because then it you got to pay for it you got to pay for that insurance the taxes right the upkeep and all that stuff so it ends up being a liability on your balance sheet to maintain it even though it is an asset so what they could have done is leverage themselves a little bit and keep their assets going there is risk to that i'm saying it's not a flawless design but there is risk to that but i would rather have a little bit of assets and not paid 100 percent cash on a vacation home that's not generating on many income yeah and what you mean by leverage so like i came from the coaching world and whenever i came into the financial world people use these big fancy words i never heard before like equities and liabilities and allocation and diversification and leverage leverage. and so for for me you know, you go from the scarcity mindset of no debt at all because debt is is the devil to where you say, hey, we need to have a abundance mentality to manage our cash flow to make sure that we are living below what we have and re- receive more than what we're spending. 
mm. right? Because it's it's cash flow is king. Cash is king. It's not about debt. It's about where is our money going? And it's, you know, on our ranch, if we if one of our creeks gets back, backed up, well, it may be good for that part of the ranch, but everything downstream now gets affected, right? Because sure. that has been cut off. There's no more cash flow from there. There's no more flow from that. And you 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 have to let things flow naturally. It's not always a bad thing to to have debt. And I think that's something that, especially in smaller towns in West Texas, we have to fight that because like even for my grandfather, we we had a fairly large ranch and his net wealth was very large. We he, when he ended up passing away, it was large enough that we actually had to pay an estate tax. And even though he was it was worth multi millions of dollars, it took us a year and a half to sell it. Mm. So we didn't have access to that because number one, you have to take whatever it is you own to an open market of exchange, find somebody that's willing to talk to you about the purchase. And then you have to come to an agreement on what the pr- the price is for that purchase. And they might know that you're in a distressed situation exactly at that right. point. So you might not get marketable at the highest possible value for that asset. Yeah. And so that, that's another conversation is, is you, when, when you're going into actually into an asset that you're forced to sell, one is I bet you didn't want to sell it. Two is you might not get the best price for it. And three is now you created a taxable event in some cases. Now, if it's upon death, you'll get a stepped up in basis and that might right. not be a, a, a taxable event. But and oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes that becomes a taxable event if it's not death related. So you got to be really careful on what you get into. And that's why I like cash. And, you know, my, my father passed this year. And, and so my mom came into some some capital and some money and you know, she has resisted and taken my advice and it's been multiple conversations and saying, right. don't let that money burn a hole in your pocket. And it's taught me, it's taken me almost six months to actually burn it into her brain that, you know, per hundred thousand dollars that you have is equivalent to whatever the withdrawal rate that you're comfortable with on the perpetuity of that asset. And what I mean by that is, so, you know, if you take 3% out of a hundred grand, you're making $3,000 a year. And that asset might last you the rest of your life. You take 4%. Well, it might only last 30 years. If you take 5%, it might only last 25 years. And so depending on what that withdrawal rate is, what we're talking about, we'll, we'll go in there. So if you're, you know, you come into a million, two million, five million, ten million, you you can kind of use that, you know, it's a rule of thumb. It's not an absolute, but you can use that as a good benchmark to understand that, hey, I can get X, Y, Z kind of income off of this asset. Now, can I take that asset? and go buy something else using a little bit of leverage. Yeah. Now, leverage allows you to deduct it in some cases if it's inside of an entity, if it's you know if it's used for business purposes sometimes. And so there's all these things that you can do with it where you can get you know the, the cake and the icing and eat it too, right? right? And right. so that's one of the things where I think financial planning will really help people understand that they're not always obligated into doing one thing. And sometimes I've, I had a client, me and Gustavo, were in a meeting with a client that, Again, everybody's buying homes in Florida. Uh, was buying a home in Florida, and we went through a huge planning meeting on showing them, you know, buy it outright, buy it with leverage, right? Buy it with their portfolio, generating the income to actually pay for it. There's all of these things that you can look forward to it, and, and it was pretty interesting on how that went. And, and they took our recommendations on one of them. They didn't on the other one. They like it, and it was just this constant engagement of what mm-hmm. their options were. And they came out of that meeting going, man, I'm in a better place knowing here's right. all the opportunities I had, and I just felt 
confident in the one that I'm doing instead of shotgun approaching it. Yeah. And that was just, hey, I'm going to go do this. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And I don't know if it's good or bad or indifferent. I'm just going to go do it. So, and, and that's where the scarcity comes into. It's either I have my cash or I have their stuff. You know, and, and people don't, and it's hard for, and it's taught to us young in age where either they, either you have your money or their stuff, you can't have both. Mm. In an abundance mindset, you can have both. Now, there are, there is leverage or debt, you know, associated with that, but we also take into account, how do we take care of that? Because you don't, you don't over leverage, you don't over debt yourself, you don't put yourself into a bad situation, but you can have both your cat, you get to keep all the stuff that you have that you've worked hard for, right? all that love, the time, the energy you put into it. And you also get to keep the stuff that is going to help you provide a better life for your family, to be more profitable for your business, or to leave your estate in a better position. You can have both. It's not impossible. It's mm -hmm. just, are you open? Can you open your mind to that possibility of a different two degrees from a two degrees separation of, of a perspective of where you're at to where you want to be yes. might give you an opportunity to, to take better advantage of what, what's going to, coming down the pipe right yes. and so it, it's really interested on how people go from so the, you like the financial planning and uh, we do something different than what you were out there we actually manage wealth in-house a little bit yeah and and that's a little bit of change from where you came from what's yeah. that like in, from your and i'm really curious about this what's that li like from your perspective on how we do it compared to where you were yeah um especially so, after this week yeah it's 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 nice to have a person to call where I can have conversations about our clients and their specific situation, instead of buying into a large mutual fund or into an ETF or into an individual stock, I or, call- Or into a third party money manager that you can't get on the phone. Correct. Ever. Yeah, they're not gonna have a conversation with me. Yep. Um, as, good as, they, as, as good as they may be, we like having conversations about specific families, where they're at, what's going on with them. And tailor their- and make it specifically for their needs, right? Or their concerns. Um, again, we, we stick to my family. If, if with my with my parents, you know, they, they're, they've they retired, they're later in years, they're kind of in the, the, the late part of their retirement. So they need to make sure that their cash is available for them and they don't need to grow their wealth. Mm -hmm. They have what they need, you know? So a little bit of, a little bit of wealth growth is nice for them. They, they enjoy it but preservation of what they've worked so hard for, what my mom and dad have worked so hard for, that's their biggest concern. Where you get somebody that's in their 20s or 30s and they're putting in two or $300 a month and they're like, man, light that thing on fire and pour gas on it, let's go. Well, now I can call Marco and say, hey, you know, this guy's young. It's, this, is, this is money that he's not gonna touch for 40 years, man, let's go. You know, when we do it, we do it within a standard of care. Like it's not just, he's 20, light it on fire it's conversations i have with him it's much deeper than that i don't want it to sound superficial but no i i get your point right there because we have a risk a risk tolerance score that we keep on long-term assets and then we have a standard of liquidity right. that we use as how do they want to hold their risk on short-term assets and so we do things way different than what most people do we actually yep. don't have one um guideline to follow that's an sec offender guideline on understanding your clients but we actually have two and right. one is for short-term liquidity and the other ones for actually long-term retirement assets and so i think having those two different things puts us separates us in a way different manner than what everybody else is doing inside of there because 
What did everybody else do? They say, hey, go, you know, answer these questions. And if you answer all these questions, this identifies who you are. But behavioral economics says that's completely inaccurate, right? Because it's all in context and you're removing basic context away from people when they look at their wealth. People will departmentalize wealth differently based upon liquidity needs or liquidity assets, access, Right. And so if you're saying, hey, I'm, you know, 35, 40 years old and we're looking at retirement accounts and you can't legally get to those assets till you're 59 and a half till you're 60 and you got 20 years, you're going to treat that risk differently than you go say, hey, this is my short term needs that I'm going to need maybe in in the next one to five years. And this is where our standard of liquidity comes in and goes, how do you want to treat those assets? And us being planners, we look at it from a holistic standpoint on not one account independently but we look at it from multiple accounts and making sure we might hold one account more aggressive and the other account way more conservative because of liquidity. So I think that's something that it's taken me a long time to develop with you and develop with the rest of our team to actually put this in place. And, and it's, it's something that we pride ourselves on. I think it's really, really good. So, and, and one of the things Brandon is that I've, I've learned a lot is there's also a middle ground. So it's not just short-term needs. It's not just long-term needs. Like short-term needs, let's leave it in cash or put it in stocks, bonds, ETFs, mutual funds, whatever. Treasuries, whatever it is. But there's also a middle ground to where, hey, if you don't need this money for seven to ten years, now we have a conservative place to put that money that will grow. And if you when when you need it, not if you need it, but when you need it, it's available for you to buy your first house, help you with your wedding, help you with your kids' graduation, mm. and it's there and it's also there tax-free. And so that middle ground for me has been like the sweet spot that I've missed for this whole time because, you know, you get a a 20-year-old that's out making, you know, a decent living and you're like, hey, if you put this much money into a Roth IRA, like a lot of people on the radio be like, if you put money in a Roth IRA for this many years and you hold on to it, you'll be a multimillionaire. Yeah, but you can't touch it until you're almost 60 years old. How does that help a 20-year-old whenever he's got kids buying a house, his car's broke down, he can pull that money out, but there may be penalties associated with it. Well, why don't we take care of that for them? Still tax-free, still conservative growth, and you can get to it. Sure, sure. I love that part. And, and full context there, there is ways to get to a Roth, and I know you know this, but there's right. ways to get to the basis of a Roth, but it is very cumbersome. Right. What you're talking about is a whole different investment vehicle that allows you, that's underreported income, allows you to get to it. And uh, we, we, I don't like talking about products. I, I don't mind talking about registrations because a Roth right. IRA is a registration that's not a product. And this right. is where clients get that just right. completely messed up in their head. Yeah. And so understand when you, when you talk about registration, you're talking about how the IRS is going to deem and tax and regulate that, how that investment or how that uh, account works is registration. So common registrations that you'll see is like a 401k, yep. an IRA, a simple plan, a 401k, uh, excuse me, a Roth IRA. Roth. Yeah, and a brokerage account. That's pretty much the core core ones that you'll see. There's hundreds of them out there. So, I mean, there's defined benefit plans and ESOPs and all kinds of stuff. So, so it's not limited just to those. But I'm just saying registration and each one of these registrations have certain positive and negative attributes to them that allows you to be able to access them or not access them or allows you to defer taxes or, or right. complete access or pay capital gains compared to working. So it's all based upon when you get access to it and how the IRS taxes it, yeah. what it, the core is to it and, and the limitations of what you can put into them. 
is one of the biggest things. And so like a brokerage account has no limitations. You can right. put as much into it as you want, but you're then pay ordinary income or you then pay capital gains depending on how long you own the assets. Mm -hmm. And that's very common in, in most worlds. So that's what, what I don't mind talking about, right? Because when you start talking about, hey, the underlying securities inside of those accounts, it's a completely separate conversation. And so that's where our maps really step in. Mm -hmm. And I think we have a tax diversified and a risk diversified map on how you allocate your assets. That's just unbelievable. I've worked with hundreds of tax attorneys and CPAs and investment advisors and wealth managers across the country and not one person can de debunk that and it wasn't mine i got i got it from a guy at, at my first broker dealer he passed away he was in california and he kind of started that about yeah, 20 years ago but he really had it defined on doctors and mm -hmm. he did it on a pre-tax and after-tax along with risk and he he kind of combined them together what we felt like and what me and you sat down and did and and i was doing a a little before you is we actually said well that's that's not accurate for most employees and most people if you if you go work and you're a w-2 earner that fits you fine right. right like a doctor is because most of them make high net worth income they're paying at the highest tax bracket and they want that diversification of risk but they also want to pay a little bit lower in taxes mm -hmm. but what a lot of the practice that we work in is business owners and the problem with that model is it doesn't account for liquidity in short terms. And so we've expanded that into more of a uh, comprehensive planning on liquidity needs along with yeah. that tax, pre-tax and after-tax needs. So I think it's really fun to actually dive into that. So you like the planning side of it. You like the wealth management side of it. And so where do you see your practice going? I always like asking the advisors of this. Like, like in an ideal world, where do you see your practice going? And I can tell you where mine's going is I think everybody in our firm knows where mine's going as in the next 13 years as my kids are graduating out of the house. But where do you see you're going? Yeah, so for me, a lot of it has to do with the background that I grew up uh, with my, my my parents, my grandparents, kind of our, our family culture around Kittiquay, Texas. And that's um, – I really like working with people that have sunburns and dirt under their fingernails and not really not they am not realizing that they have estate concerns or that we could help them arrange their estate in a manner that is most beneficial to their family to where the hardest day of their life is not the worst day of their life. Hmm. And they're not having to go through these um, this this trial, you know, this this not trial, but these hard times and spending a lot of time, a lot of money and a lot of emotional energy um, dealing with these situations a lot like what my family went through whenever my whenever my mom's uh, mom and dad passed away um, so our, our ranch um, had exceeded like I had spoke earlier um, the estate limit and we had to sell half of our ranch uh, which was turtle hole out by Matador and um, we put that on the market and the, the the IRS gives you nine months to fulfill that estate tax 40 percent. So this has been this had been land that had been in our family for decades. Taxes were up on it. There was no debt on it. This was 100% ownership for our family, but we still had to present it for sale to to satisfy the estate needs. And we put it on the market. You know that that large of a ranch out in West Texas takes a while to sell. So we surpassed the nine months. So which means we start getting hit with penalties on top of that. So now it turns from a sale to a fire sale. And so we sell our property, the property less than uh, the value of what it should have been. Plus, we had to pay taxes on top of that. 
Plus, we had to pay penalties on top of the taxes on top of the fire sale. Yeah, see, that's insane, though. So think about that. So if you see the lifetime exclusion inside of husband and wife, and there's ways to mitigate this. And right. so, I mean, there's a lot of ways to mitigate this. And I always say, if you do anything and you're close to the right now, lifetime exclusions in 20. Uh, 2023 right now is 12.9 million and some change, right? So per person. So you're at, you know, 13 million times two husband and wife. You're a little short of $26 million. So it's pretty substantial. But a lot of people don't understand is that there's a sunset provision on December 31st of 2025 here in about 15, 18 months that this thing's going to get cut down in half. And so, and everybody's like, Oh man, so sorry about you. You, you got, you can only protect 13 million or $26 million. But what you don't understand is land's expensive. And when you're farming or you're running a ranch, it doesn't take a lot. And you're talking about multi-generationals of holding five, 10, 20, 30, 50. I mean, I, I can't have a story kind of similar to yours. It's funny how we ended up together. Now I said this and my parents owned and leased, they didn't own it all, but they leased, uh, you know, it's about 50, 50, about 50,000. Uh, it was a hundred sections. So I had to do the math in my head. I'm sorry. So it's 640 acres, right? 640,000. Yeah. 640,000 acres is what they leased and owned back when in, in the seventies and eighties. Wow. And so they owned about half of that. So I bet they were around 300,000 acres. And it wasn't the greatest land. Yeah. And it's in New Mexico. It was yeah. really not the greatest land. Yeah. So it's not like you. And, and so in ranching world, you would have to put a cow-calf operation. It's, it's not. It's how many acres can you get per cow-calf operation, right. right? And so I think the what what's the most here that I've heard, I think it's what, 10, 15 acres per calf yeah. unit, per cow-calf unit. I think they were up to like 80 acres per calf. calf yeah. I mean, it was, it was a, you know, like three or four times more acreage because there's no veg- vegetation. It was, you know, it's like the moon. There was nothing for these yeah. cattle to eat. And so if you can't put weight on them, you can't run a business when you're right. in the cow calf. And so they ended up in two generations going from, let's just say 40, 50, uh, uh sections, uh, that they owned outright down to like less than 10. And now in my generation, we only have one set left. I think they're down to two sections. And so just whittled it away. Now, a lot of that was estate taxes, but a lot of it was there just was no planning done at all. And so there's value on this. So I highly encourage people that have businesses, especially if you have a lot of land. Because you, you can't tra- transition or trade that land within a phone call or a mouse click into a dollar like you, you went through. And so, but anytime you sell something, now you got to pay taxes, taxes on what on you, yeah, yeah, and just to satisfy that. So there's a lot of risk when you come into there if you don't have planning. And so the, I always say it's the juice worth the squeeze, like you're saying, the abundance yeah. life. You know, if you're providing value more than what the cost is, you know, there there's a good thing we always say in our planning is me. There's a cost to doing business, but most of the time the cost of not doing business outweighs the cost of doing it. Yeah. And you gotta be really careful right there to make sure that you're you don't shut your mind down to saying, Hey, I'm going down this and type a guys that are business owners and are really bad about this. And I'm one of those guys where I get going down a path and I just really don't have the time to deviate from it. Yeah. And, and a lot of times people in those situations know that they probably should do something. And if they were presented with it, they, they might pursue it or at least entertain it. But it's, it's a matter of time for them also. 
because if you're if you're dealing with that many acres, or you're dealing with a, a, a property that large, or your or your business is that busy, where do you find time? Again, yeah. it goes back to time of money, you know. So it's um, human capital. Yeah, your, your human capital, what it's worth, right? And having that in in, in your own plan. But I, I agree with you, and that's the one thing we give back, and that's the thing that it takes so much. Yes, it takes a lot of time to set up a financial plan, and you got to be engaged, and you have to have that constant engagement. But once it's up and going, and everybody understands what the rhythm is, you don't have to manage the day to day inside of it. Right. You have a team around you that does it for you. Right. And I think that's a huge service that we have. But then you still have to show up to meetings. You still have to, you know, yeah. sit in there and, and go through it just to make sure everything's working the way you want. Because the one thing I can guarantee you is that everything's fluid and it's always going to change. Right. So, you know, there is always change inside of somebody's financial plan. They buy something, they sell something, the market goes up, the market goes down. Right? Whatever it is, there there is always change. It's the yeah. only guarantee I can give you is, hey, whatever your plan is today, it's going to be different sometime in the future yeah and 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 with land a lot of what has driven prices up is recreational use Mm. it's not the price of cattle it's not the price of cotton it's people coming out with horses or atvs or four-wheelers or their family looking for a place to enjoy property that they don't want to own but they're willing to pay a price for it and so that is driving the price of land up where the price of cattle is not keeping up with that and so like for our our ranch we have a lot of equestrian uh people come out from all over the country and they ride our ranch and it's a beautiful place. Uh, there's not very, there's no cattle on it right now because we've been in a drought for the last couple of years. We've just now started getting rain. The, the grass is just now starting to come back to where we can sustain cattle again. And, you know, it's just, it's just one of those things where, you know, people think of, you know, a lot of lamb, high values and stuff like that. But man, there's such a nuance to it that you just don't see. I, I, I have seen that here lately. Like I remember looking back just when I started my career and I was remembering uh, ranch land was going for three to $400 an acre. Yeah. I mean, some of this ranch land with no water on it, it's going for $1,500, $2,000 an acre. And I'm going, good grief. How do you afford that? Yeah. How do you afford to run an, a cow-calf operation or just a working ranch on prices that big when cattle really hasn't in, inflation adjusted? Think, I mean, it has. I mean, the, you go to the market and you try right. to buy – a good steak you're paying 50 bucks at the store just for the steak and that's and then you still got to go cook it you know what i'm saying so it's in we're in texas so we buy yeah two two inch steak here right so we buy some good stuff around here but it's uh you you get my point i agree with you but there's a lot of guys wanting to go buy that you know 30 acres 180 acres 50 acres and they put a little homestead on there and they they you know have a little bit of cattle and, and they play cowboy you know, yeah. that's what I, and I'm one of those, I uh, play cowboy. I wish I grew up on a ranch, but I didn't get that fortunate. So I hadn't been on a horse in 20 years, but. Well, and, and you're seeing people move in from out of state where the cost of living in Texas has been so low. The cost of living of people that are moving in, migrating into our culture, they're selling their houses for five, like for what a house would cost here, it's five to 10 times more where they're moving from. So they're able to buy the same house with a lot of land with it. Mm. So there's a lot of cash flow coming into Texas and. People that have lived there their whole our whole lives are going. We can't afford to pay that because we don't have that equity available, the liquidity available to provide. You know the the prices that, which is great for people selling, but for people that are owning or trying to buy that are from Texas, that's that's pretty rough. I know that's one thing that's an absolute is good. Lord's not making any more land, is it? And so except in Hawaii. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you might not be able to sit on it for yeah. the next hundred years, but yeah, that is true. I never even thought of that. That's a good point, Mark. So, well, is there, uh, how, how do people get a hold of you? Yeah. So my office is in Wichita Falls. Uh, I'm in the Hamilton building. I'm in suite 927. Uh, my phone number is 940-488-1006. Um, you can get a hold of me through, uh, our website also. Um, but yeah, those are, those are, Go to my church on a Sunday morning. You can see me up there playing bass guitar. Go to a ribbon cutting in Wichita Falls, Texas. You'll see me wearing a gold coat and a cowboy hat. I mean, just I'm around. I'm contactable. Uh, I enjoy conversations. And I'll, I'll and, and, and above all else, Brandon, I think the number one thing that you and I want to do is serve people. Yeah, that's we we want to provide value to people. And anytime we meet with people, I think one of the coolest things that we do is we always give people two or three things. They can, they can walk away with and execute on their own. They don't have to have us mm. because we really do care about people. We, re, we really do care about their families. We do consider this uh, a, a way to minister to families in our community, and we want to help. Yes, we want to provide for our families, too, with an income. But, man, if you, if you live in that um, abundance mindset, you will never go broke. And that's great words yeah. right there. That's, that's good. That's a good, good spot to start on. Mark, I really appreciate you coming here. And that, you know, I'm so happy to have you part of the team. And there's a lot of growth that we've done this year as a firm, but having you a part of it has been just amazing. So yeah. thanks for coming in. I appreciate you being here for mid year kickoff as well. Yeah. And, and man, here's to a great dinner tonight. I'm excited about it. Cheers. All right, buddy. Have a good one.